my next collection. Then I'm going to go back to Hold Me Tight, and I might visit a couple other things. In the end, you get everything. Oh, these are parentheses. Um, in the end, you get everything back. Liza Minnelli. The afterlife is an infinity of custom shelving, where everything you have ever loved has a perfect place, including things that don't fit on shelves, like the weeping willow from your parents' backyard or an old boyfriend, exactly as he was in your second year of college, or an aria you love but without the rest of the opera you don't particularly care for. My favorite joke. Question. You know who dies? Answer. Everyone. Because it's true. But ask any doctor, and they'll say that prolonging a life is saving a life. Ask anyone who survives their surgeries, and they'll say, yes, to keep living is to be saved. I do think there's a statute of limitations on grief, like certainly how someone died can be sad forever. But who can be sad simply about the fact that Shakespeare, say, is dead? Or Sappho? Or G. Garland? Or Rumi? There's a Twitter account called Liza Minnelli Outlives, which put into the world a set of thoughts I was having privately, but the Twitter account is kinder than I had been, tweeting things like, Liza Minnelli has outlived the National Rifle Association, which has filed for bankruptcy, and Liza Minnelli has outlived Army Hammer's career, to take the sting out of the really painful ones, like Liza Minnelli has outlived Jessica Walter, or Liza Minnelli has outlived George Michael, or Liza Minnelli has outlived Prince. In my own afterlife, the custom shelves are full of Liza Minnelli's. Liza in Cabaret, Liza in Arrested Development, Liza singing Steam Heat on the Judy Garland Christmas special, Liza on The Muppet Show, Liza in Liza's at the Palace, and because this is heaven, Liza won't even know she's in my hall of loved objects, just as I won't know that my fandom has been placed on her shelf. For when Liza Minnelli has outlived Jason Schneiderman, waiting for Liza Minnelli, when Liza Minnelli has outlived Liza Minnelli, which is what fame is and what fame is not. And if Jason Schneiderman outlives Jason Schneiderman, and your love of this poem waits for me on one of my shelves and will keep me company for eternity, thank you for that. I promise to cherish your love in that well-lit infinity of forever. In one theory of the mind, the psyche is just a grab bag of lost objects. Our wholeness lost when we leave the womb, when we discover our own body, and so on and so on. Our wholeness lost and lost and lost as we find ourselves smaller and smaller. Which is why heaven is an endless, cozy warehouse where nothing you loved is gone, where you are whole because you get everything and by everything, I mean you. Um, I'm going to read a few poems from Hold Me Tight. And I'm going to start with, um, because uh, it's been so wonderful interacting with so many visual artists, um, the Chris Burden Suite, which is at the center. And if you're not familiar with the work of Chris Burden, um, he was very active in the 1960s um, through the early 2000s. Um, but a lot of the pieces are described in the poems, so I won't describe them. The Chris Burden Suite. One, Velvet Water, 1974. That's the name of the um, piece. Velvet Water. Watching a man trying to breathe water is a lot like watching a man trying to drown himself. At first, you want to stop him, 
to take his head out of the bucket, to insist that it's a lovely idea, but no one can actually breathe water. And then you worry for him, and then you worry less for him, and then you wish he'd stop. At first, it's awful, like a horror movie where the things are really happening, and then it's tedious. Since he won't drown, and he won't stop trying to drown, excuse me, breathe water, and the suffering is there for you to witness as art or not. You can go. As he reminded you at the start of this video, this is a recording. It's not happening. It's not even what happened. It's just a record, just a way of thinking yourself back. Two, and this one is in two voices. How long did they stand on the ladders? All night. And the water was electrified? Yes. With live wires, cables, really. What would have happened if they had stepped in the water? Death? Pain? You don't know very much about the effects of electric current on the human body, do you? Not really. But you're afraid of them? Yes. Very afraid? Yes. Would that be a good enough reason to stand on a ladder above the thing you fear and face it down? For me? Yes. No. If I got on an elevator and I were told to stick pushpins in the artist, I think I'd say no. I hope I'd say no. All the submarines of the United States of America, 1987. The submarines are undeniably beautiful, suspended from the ceiling in a field that makes one want to live underwater. And that's the problem, right? The cuteness. The way that the adorable becomes the lovable when you're supposed to reject the whole system. You shouldn't say what beautiful submarines. You should say, oh God, look at all that destruction we've unleashed on the world. But really, those are some beautiful submarines. Um, I'm gonna move ahead, and this book is built around five sequences, and I'm gonna move to a sequence that bu that's built around last things. And so in sort of each of these poems, I've imagined the last of something. The last book. The last book tries to remember the last time someone read it. Tries to remember if someone has ever read it at all. The last book isn't sure what it's about because it can't open its own pages the way you can't open your own chest and you've never seen your own organs. The last book has no other books to ask about what it feels like to be read because that's what it means to be the last. And the last book doesn't even know that it's just zeros and ones hurtling through space sent into the universe by people who died millennia ago on a planet that's long since been eaten by the sun it revolved around. The last book still thinks it's paper and ink, bookboard and cloth. And if anyone ever picks up the signal, maybe it will be again. The last mirror. The last mirror was put on trial. 
The Last Mirror was accused of inciting vanity, of lacking originality, of encouraging vice, of being nothing more than a parrot or an echo. The Last Mirror's defense was that Echo had shown devotion to the man she loved and that parrots love their pirates. The Last Mirror insisted that vanity, like greed, can be good because really every man should love himself. The Last Mirror argued that vice is a lot of fun every now and then, and that imitation can also be a form of love. Why, even Freud, that old master, could not distinguish between the desire to possess and the desire to be. The last mirror lost the case. As you may have guessed, it was a show trial. The judge said that love is not a defense and even ejected the viewer who laughed when the prosecutor asked the mirror in a froth of rage and anger, what's love got to do with it? Entirely unaware of the song by the same name. The judge ordered the last mirror shattered into a hundred thousand pieces on the courtroom floor. When the bailiff had shattered the last mirror, each one of the pieces proclaimed that now it was the last mirror, however small the piece might have been. The judge held the prisoners in contempt and called every piece a liar. Does everyone remember Ace of Base? Like, can I read the Ace of Base? <laughs> Does that, like, everyone knows? Okay. The last Ace of Base enthusiast. It's really hard. I didn't realize this is a tongue twister when I wrote it. Then I went to read it. I was like, oh, well. The last Ace of Base enthusiast. The last Ace of Base enthusiast wishes she could live in the 1990s. The last Ace of Base enthusiast imagines a world where it was impossible to avoid Ace of Base, where it would be playing over the stereo when you entered a convenience store or when you went to the bank. At first, she was annoyed when her friends asked her what the songs meant or tried to pin her down on precisely what the sign was or insisted on knowing why the main character was crying and don't turn around. Later, she was frustrated when her friends refused to listen to her answers, and she had to write a book explaining all of the lyrics and the multiple permutations by which they might be understood. No one bought the book. So she started making dioramas of the convenience stores and banks in the 1990s where you couldn't avoid Ace of Base songs. Her show of dioramas is well-received and highly regarded as an example of the new retrospectivists though she is constantly hurt by the pride the critics take in being able to endure the hideous cacophony of screeching vocals that the artist has dredged up from the past that we remember with great pain, but as she has shown us, forget at our own peril. <laughs> Once, she thinks, people would have bought the CD in the gift shop on the way out of the museum back in the 1990s when there were CDs. This is the last one I'll read from this sequence. Uh, the Last War. The Last War. The project was simple, though initially most people regarded it as misguided. We removed everyone under the age of 12 from every armed conflict. Anyone from 12 to 18 could stay and fight or go, up to them. Adults left in war zones were sterilized, using a gas cloud that could be wafted over battlefields, starving the conflicts of new combatants. Many people were sure that the children, raised abroad by strangers, would continue the conflicts. But having anticipated that probability, plans were carefully developed. The adoptive parents were instructed to give contradictory answers, 
saying things like, oh, wait, no, your parents were Sunni, not Shia, or maybe Sufi? Or, no, I'm fairly sure you were Irish. Or was it English? If the children demanded proof, our office created specially forged family trees to show one Hutu and one Tutsi parent, or one conquistador and one Aztec parent, or one Nazi and one Jew. It took a long time, generations, and our critics likened it to genocide or ethnic cleansing, and in a way, it was. But every person on the planet watched the last war with great pity, the last two survivors of some ancient conflict, the war zones having gotten smaller and smaller, easily monitored with drones and satellite imaging, the last combatant shot the second to last combatant, and he rejoiced to have won, to have claimed for all his ancestors the piece of land that he would hold until he died under quarantine. He didn't ask to be let out. He knew we wouldn't let him, and so he died, king of his shrunken domain. And after that, we went in, forgetfully, purposefully insistent on forgetting, determined to make no new history to remember as little as possible. We have destroyed the archives. We have shredded and wiped and erased and burned. We have diaries in which we tear out the pages as soon as we fill them, and on the shelves we store nothing more than the empty book covers. We are visionary, we believe, in our belief that there will be no more fighting as long as there is nothing to fight about. Um, I'm going to read next a very, very long poem um, that's from the forthcoming collection. And um, it has two epigraphs that come from Middle English. Um, and I'm going to read them the way that I was taught to pronounce Middle English. But they will come back in the poem in contemporary English um, so you'll recognize them. Um, Blood libel. My throte is cut. Um, and the first epigraph is from Chaucer's The Prioress's Tale, 1399. My throte is cut unto me neck a boon, this child, and by way of kinder I should have died, yea, longer time agone. And the second is from the Wyclef Bible, uh, 1395, from Matthew 2628. Rinka ye all hereof, this is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be shed for many into remissionis of sinis. Blood libel. My throat is good. For roughly three years, in our brand new century, at a business called Ambrosia, the food of the gods, or a marshmallow salad, depending on whom you ask, older people feeling sluggish could be infused with the blood of younger people for the low, low price of $8,000 a liter. There was one center in Florida, one in California, and as you might expect, one more to open in New York before the FDA shut them down. Shortly after the first syringe was invented in 1659, the first blood transfusion took place, the blood of a healthy lamb injected into the circulatory system of a man with a fever. And after that went well, more lamb blood was injected into more humans until some of those humans began dying and a widow sued for her husband's death leading to the outlawing of the practice, at least in France. At least until the early 1900s, when the discovery of blood types allowed for blood transfusions between humans to be safely carried out. 
Everyone I know is obsessed with blood, metaphorically speaking, with ancestry, with what has been passed down, getting DNA tests to tell them where their genetic ancestors had lived in the 1300s, and I am twice traitor to my blood, an adoptee taking residence in a community to which I have no blood ties and a childless man, letting my bloodline stop with me, the decadent hero of my own little novel, cultivating art at the future's expense. In Kafka stories, the young protagonist often dies or withers just as his father finds new vitality, and I think too much about Gregor Samsa's blood and what it turns into when he becomes Ungipsifer, typically translated as vermin, though commonly understood as bug. Kafka died in 1924, sparing him the horrors of the Holocaust, though Territsen was in his hometown of Prague. The model concentration camp pulled straight from his stories, shown to the Red Cross by the Nazis to prove their humanity when they too were obsessed with blood, shouting slogans like blood and soil. Kafka's blood was Jewish, like mine or not like mine, who knows, though sometimes I imagine the famously wan and depressed young Kafka donating his blood to some aging tech billionaire, which in my imagined story makes the tech billionaire lethargic and despondent, unable to do much beyond see the inherent absurdity in his fortune, in his tech, in his life. If I were a novelist, I'd know what happens next, but I'm a poet, so that's as far as I can see. At Harvard, Young mice and old mice are having their bloodstreams linked for study. It's called parabiosis, and while the research looks promising for the old mice, no one seems too concerned about the young mice as long as they don't die. Jews are forbidden the consumption of blood, required to drain the carcasses they plan to eat, to salt the meat, to draw out the blood. Jews are forbidden to eat any part of a living animal, in Eastern Europe, the Jews we met used only clear alcohol for Kiddush, schnapps or vodka, avoiding wine to avoid the accusation of using blood in their rituals, an accusation that seems to have originated in 12th century England, but has been surprisingly durable, spreading outward, morphing, surviving many ages of reason, and surfacing most recently as frazzle drip a conspiracy theory in which drinking blood and mutilating children is standard left-wing practice, which is why it has become standard right-wing practice to show up with guns where those children are believed to be. In the Canterbury Tales, the prioress's tale recounts a child being ritualistically murdered by Jews, but when the Jews throw the boy's body into the privy, his corpse sings a hymn that allows his body to be found. My throat is cut down to the neck bone, said this child, and by way of man, I should have died. I shouldn't be surprised anymore that people believe such outlandish stories, especially when those stories are covered with blood. I get so angry that I live in an age of unreason, but all ages are ages of unreason. I get so angry when I think of how little we are doing to escape the danger we all know we're in. Below my screen, I see my aging hands, the skin beginning to show the tendons and blood vessels that move as I type. The Red Cross stopped taking my blood the very first time I made love to a man, and I'm much too old for anyone in Silicon Valley to pay for my blood anymore, which is to say that no one wants my blood now, unless maybe poetry itself is a kind of parabiosis. 
Maybe I've already begun bleeding into you, and you are metabolizing me now, my blood in your blood, my flesh in your flesh. There is a painting from the Spanish Inquisition that depicts a family of Jews torturing the wafer Christ's body in private, and a trickle of blood flows from the wafer so slight the Jews don't see it has run a thread-thin river out the door, alerting the inquisitors to come and put the Jewish family to death. What is it, Christ says, the Christ I am said to have killed? the Christ I don't believe in, drink you all hereof. This is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be shed for many into remission of sins. I am no Christ. I am no martyr. My blood is not magic or redemptive or salvific. My blood is my blood, and yes, of course, my blood does sing, though not to call out for violence or revenge. The human heart knows just one tune, an iambic thumping in time to the breath, the restless blood traversing our bodies at incredible speed. And if you put your ear to my chest, you will feel the gentle pulsing of my beating heart. And you will hear the only song my heart can sing. Because inside us all is a beautiful noise, a beautiful human noise. Um, I'm going to read... Uh, I think two, I'm going to read three more poems, two are, two are on the longer side, and then one is a much shorter poem. Um, Gay Divorce, 10th Avenue. I am also <laughs> experiencing separation after a very long time. Gay Divorce, 10th Avenue. These streets are so bright now, in what was once the gloom of Manhattan's outer edge. The giant glowing logos beaming their fluorescent success stories into what I remember as a place of loading and unloading, of cheap real estate, of too much exhaust. Well done, 10th Avenue. Well done, Whole Foods. Well done, Peloton. Well done, H&M. I'm only two drinks in, perhaps three, four, if you count that double as two, treading my way home from a daytime dance party, a lunch, a friend, his friends, a leather bar, and it's early enough that the trains are still only five minutes apart, and home I go to my clean sheets and empty bed. Empty, but for me. Empty, but for my one pillow. I love New York for the way it makes you feel small but welcomed. Always in these streets, I feel both insignificant and special. New York is always saying, would you like some cheap pizza? Did you see this architectural marvel? Did that rat scare you? If I'd stayed a little longer at the bar, I could have woken up in a stranger's bed, which I'm allowed to do now. No check-in, no betrayal, no repercussion. But I'm afraid of those beds now remembering how I used to use them to sample the lives I might live until I woke up in one that I never left, until now. But still, it's too risky. I don't have another 20 years to spend with another stranger. At the leather bar, my friend was asking his friend about disco, specifically about the music released between 1978 and 1982, which seemed a bit narrow to me, but I listened with curiosity. And when the conversation turned to black lights and body paint, I mentioned the famous photograph of Bill T. Jones, his body painted by Keith Haring, covered in those famous squiggly lines documented by Tseng Kuang Shi, but even that's not quite right. They were collaborators. The piece belonged to all of them, but that's not how it got remembered. No one seemed to know what I was talking about, so I googled it, and everyone recognized it instantly. 
The disco expert pointed out the painted stripes on Jones's cock, which I took to mean that he was distracted by his sex, or rather that like most people, he cannot reconcile the erotic with the aesthetic, even though the two have never been better joined than in disco music, which is supposedly his area of expertise. Then I thanked everyone, took my leave, walked into the dark night, alone in the evening gloom, punctuated by bright logos and cheap pizza. I want to tell everyone that my marriage is over. I want New York to make it all better. But that's hardly New York style, or mine. At the pizza place, I ask for a slice of plain rather than explain that I haven't been alone this way in 21 years. In the brand new train station, I ask a woman which stairs will take me to the train I need rather than explain that we didn't grow apart as much as we learned the ways in which we were incompatible. The truth is that New York is a teacher with only one lesson, how to be sad, how to live with sadness. 10th Avenue wants to know if I'd like to look in a window, if I'd like to cross the street, if I'd like to be illuminated by a glowing sign. The train station wants to know if I like its modern design and open spaces. The subway wants to know if the molded plastic is good for sitting on. My pillow wants to know if it's soft enough and if I'll be sleeping on my side or my back tonight. New York wraps me in its endlessly interrupted darkness, which is not the same as trying to cheer me up. I may have finally learned my lesson. Um, I'm going to read, th this poem is going to be in Best American uh, 2023, so I'm, it's a persona poem, so um, in almost all of the poems, everything is true. In this one, none of it is true. A dramaturgy. I'm writing a play about a commandant at Auschwitz who recognizes one of the Jewish prisoners as a famous poet. And the commandant, and as the commandant has poetic aspirations himself, he pulls the prisoner away from the work detail to receive poetry lessons from the celebrated Jewish writer. The bulk of the play is their discussions of poetry, which the poet is initially reluctant to have, the power differential being so stark. And though he flatters the commandant at first, when he begins to see his Nazi pupil's true devotion to the art, as well as his untrained and untapped talent, he goes to work in earnest. And at times, they are both simply lovers of the German language, though the truth of their situation often interrupts. In the last act, the commandant is on trial for his crimes. And in the days before he is to be executed, he begs the poet to publish his work under his own name, the Nazi's writing under the Jew's name, because as a Nazi, he feels his own name is disgraced, but he believes so strongly in poetry that it matters more to him than that his work survive, than that anyone know it was his work. The play is pulled entirely from my imagination, a careful rereading of Simon Wiesenthal's The Sunflower and the poetic ideas of Rilke and Goethe with a smattering of Nietzsche. In readings of the play, the commandant has seemed more noble than I had intended, in many ways more noble than the Jew, because the Jew is suffering by no fault of his own, while the commandant is tortured by conscience and driven by a sense of poetic calling that separates him from the Germans around him. On the morning of the third workshop reading, I watched a video of two Russians on an ice dancing reality show performing as Jews in Auschwitz. I was sickened. 
even though I couldn't follow the pantomimed action, and I wondered if I was producing Holocaust kitsch myself, if my work was as disgusting as theirs, though I knew if I asked any of my team, they would reassure me that I am doing important work that rises to the level of art. Last night, during a break in the workshop of the play, I told the story of how my grandmother, upon learning that her entire family had died in the camps, had burned the photo albums of everyone she had loved. I have told that story many, many times without feeling much more than regret or sympathy, but this time I broke down crying and could not stop. Everyone at the table came to comfort me and I felt ridiculous. But the only thing I could say was, it's time for us to go. This isn't a place we can live anymore. I left the studio embarrassed, and later that day, I resigned from the production. I don't think they believed that I was serious, and they'll expect me to show up at the next table reading. I won't. The play will go on, though I can have nothing more to do with it. This morning, after taking a shirt off the hanger, I looked in the mirror and realized I hadn't put it on. Without thinking, I had started packing a bag. And very few of my poems are dated, but that one is dated December 2016. Um, and the last poem that I read, and, um, and then we can have a conversation or a Q&A or however you want to um, engage, um, is a, a short poem about Fanny Imlay. And um, Fanny Imlay is the older half-sister of Mary Shelley. And when Mary Shelley, who is still Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, um, fled her house with Percy Shelley, um, she refused to take Fanny with her. And Fanny became a go-between um, as uh, William Godwin and Mary, later Mary Shelley, were having this back and forth, and she was supposed to ferry these letters back and forth, and it, 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 was, it was too much for her. Laudanum, by the way, is a, um, laudanum is a mixture of opiate and uh, opium and alcohol. In memoriam, Fanny Imlay, 1794 to 1816. When you ask yourself how people survived the 19th century, before soap and antibiotics, before anesthesia and electricity, remember that not all of them did. Remember Fanny Imlay in her hotel room, drafting her suicide note before drinking laudanum. Remember the innkeeper who found her corpse and tore her name from the bottom of the note so that she could be buried in Christian ground. Remember Fanny Imlay's final words, offering the blessing of forgetting that such a creature ever existed as I, Remainder, torn away. <laughs>